good day, and welcome to the Writer's Lock, your number one podcast for incredibly niche readings and discussions of Pokemon fanfictions from the Nuzlocke community. I'm your editor, CJ Apples, filling in for Rainy for this episode. Today's podcast features two new story locks written by members of the Nuzlocke community, as well as the continuation of our season-long look at Carousel. We'll also take some time today to discuss what happens when your story's cast starts to get a little on the crowded side, as well as how to handle overlap between multiple characters. First, as always, let's return to Carousel, as Yusin's journey continues. He's been blessed by both Lugia and Ho, but what trials are left for him to face? We pick up the story in Ecrutique to find out. Carousel by Garish Garchomp Chapter 7. Be My World The bell tower hasn't rung in centuries. The titular bell is tended to weekly by a young monk, with the utmost care to preserve its silence. Countless checks have been made to ensure it can withstand a disaster, unlike its predecessor. Should the unthinkable happen, it would be swarms like a man who barged into a beedrill's nest. For now, it stands strong as one of the world's great monuments. When it's told, Yusin feels every vibration in the bell's past run through him. The pagoda is a beacon of hope and sanctity for the city and the region, yet all he sees is the shadow it casts over him. He knows he must go. The monk at the gate regards him with stoicism, halting Yusin in his tracks before he passes. They lock eyes, and neither budges until he gives the slightest of nods. Only then does his heart stop careening around his ribcage. By the time he reaches the steps to the ground floor, it's already revved up again. It's not the same panic he's used to, at least. It's a dull throb rather than a razor's jab, and it feels odd to him that it's so subdued. His breathing is steady, his hands don't shake, it's just his mind that's nostalgic for the days of hysterics. He stops at the top of the stairs. The city beyond looks as peaceful as the warm-coloured trees in front of him. If he were at all artistic, he would set up shop here for the next week slaving away at a canvas until he finishes a masterpiece or he reaches death by a million brushstrokes. Likely the latter, given how vast this view is. Tranquil, hmm? Suicune's beside him. He doesn't know when she got there or where she came from, but here she is, taking in the same view rather than taking him to her ethereal realm. Yes, strangely so, he replies, doing his best to keep his gaze straight ahead. She laughs, a one-note bark. You must be well acquainted with peculiarities by now. Yusin grips his leg to keep his hand from shaking right off the wrist. When did he start trembling again? Why does she have this power over him? How perverse is this for him to be so anxious in the face of such calm? One question bubbles its way above all those, as it has since this all began. Why me? Against his better judgement, he looks at her now. Her crest gleams in the sun as she slowly turns to him. Hmm? There's so many people in Johto. So many good, faithful, put-together people in this region. So many just here in Ecritique who live under the gaze of the towers every day and are so much more worthy of... you seen. His breath evaporates. Suicune's crimson stare screeches time to a halt in anticipation of her reply. Even the north wind pauses. When she speaks, it's with the same smoky voice, and the same tone that marks the utmost consideration of every single word. I promise you, I will give you the reasoning for my judgement when the time comes, 
but I cannot do that until you make it through your final task. When Yusin moves again, any pretense of calm has faded. Until I make it through, he repeats, eyes darting between Suicune and the ground. Until I make it through, that's all this has been, you know, making it through. She doesn't reply. He keeps spiralling. That's all my life has been, is making it through. Making it through school, making it through the bullying, through a horrible job, through all my anxiety, through all my doubts. You seen, please. And now, I've been chosen. Now my whole life, which is just a series of confrontations between me and myself, is culminating in what? A series of confrontations between me and myself, but now with fire, with hurricanes, with the highest stakes in the world? My entire life has been staggering along purely on nerve, and of all the gods to trot right up to me, it's the one without a single ounce of that in her body. Suicune doesn't interject now. His hands wind around each other, and his legs look almost unfit to hold him up, but she doesn't utter a word to him. He told me on that very first day about my essence. This is it. This is what it's always been. Anxiety. All the time. Doubts about the past, which color doubts about the future, conspiring to bring down the present. He trails off there, more to catch his failing breath than anything else. And yet you're here. Yusin blinks with an empty gaze. In spite of all that has plagued you, you stand at the foot of the most sacred place in Jodo. His little gasps turn back into breaths as he lets that settle in the air. There's hardly time for that before she continues. You have but one task ahead of you. After conquering natural disasters and human foes alike, I have the utmost confidence in you to succeed in that as well. She lifts her head as her gaze softens. If you'd like, though, I can provide a little assistance. You seen reels from the offer, almost literally. Yes, yes, that would be great. I mean, how? You know, not to, not to question you or anything. Of course, I just, you know. Suicune doesn't take her eyes off him. I know. Heat swells in Yusin's cheeks. Um, I mean, the only other time I've seen you is the start, and now you're just here, offering some kind of hands-on, pause-on aid, or something. However, gods work things out. Suicune's mane flows behind her as she circles him. She stops to where the conversation started, by his side, overlooking a critique. I know. I just have to enjoy you being so easily flustered while I still can, she says, without any lilts to her voice. Anyways, shall we begin? He whimpers, and then just nods and shuts his eyes when told to. We're going to find your essence, Yusin, Suicune says once he's set. That place where I summoned you, that was my realm, and you have one too. You just need to tap into it. How so? Take deep, consistent breaths, in through your nose, then back out through it. She pauses, letting him settle into this. Now, find your peace, however much of it you can. Construct a place where you cannot help but be serene. The feeling you had when walking on water, the poise you worked up in Olivine, they're what go into this now. Yusin squeezes his eyes even further shut, but the moment that weightlessness hits him, they relax again. He looks through his eyelids at his feet, and the stone underfoot melts. Flashes of blue pierce through his vision. 
the cool he feels when he steadies himself upon the water, it would take him aback if not for that glorious, numbing tranquility that washes over him. No, he thinks, it's not numbness, it's stability. He doesn't think about the Whirl Islands, he just knows he resides atop the water. He doesn't worry about the storms he's weathered, just lets the north wind caress him and buoy him even further. Yusin smiles to himself, in disbelief more than anything. He's poured at it before, toyed with the concept, but only after a quarter of a century does he know what peace is. Light filters through his eyes until he opens them, and is once again confronted by the Aurora Borealis monitoring him from above. This one is distinctly purple, but tinged by cerulean. Flecks of seafoam glitter in the sky as well, bringing Suicune's crest to mind. He feels pinpricks on his hands. It takes a second to register them as raindrops, but it brings a full-fledged smile to his face as he stretches out both arms. As if he wasn't cleansed enough, the drizzle hitting him feels as pure as Suicune's steps. The goddess herself beams as she trots over next to him, taking in the new sights. Quite different from mine, I see. Yusin has to pause to process his surroundings. There are some similarities, of course. The Borealis is near identical to hers, and both of their realms feature the beach and a vibe that's stunning in its sheer tranquility. He senses the breezes out at sea swirling, despite the north wind behind him. It takes him back to the moment he came out of his trance in her domain, the gusts twisting and turning until they smacked him across the face. It was clear skies all around with her, compared to the bright clouds that have accumulated behind him, out of the way of the lights over the horizon. Her seas were frozen, glistening blankets spread over the seabed, his ebbing, flowing, and breaking onto shore, but the area in which he stands is as placid as can be. The landscape itself is the biggest shift. The thing that shocked him about Suicune's realm was the expanse, the endless sea, and the eternal shoreline on either side of him. But this... it's... intimate, for sure. The ocean sprawls out before him, but behind lies a skinny little cove jutting into the shore. Craggy ridges shelter the bay while leading up to lush hills. The waters are almost clear as air when they settle, but that's only deep into the cove. Suicune looks at him, still taking in everything with awe written all over his face. It's definitely yours. Yusin turns to the legendary beast, finally having pried his attention away for a moment. It's you. Something in those two words strikes him, and something inside of him works up the voice to say, It's me. I found peace through my realm so many years ago. It's about time you were able to do the same, my son. Everything rattles, falters, distorts around them. The water hardens and grows, more opaque by the second. Trees sprout from the hillsides, and the northern wind dismisses both the clouds and the lights. The entire world creaks and jitters, and Yusin leaps dimensions without moving an inch. Before he can grasp at his realm anymore, he's in front of the bell tower, with Suicune by his side. Not all of the peace of that moment carried over. The nerves of this world have him shaking again, ever so slightly. His mind races, just trying to comprehend as much as he can about the past few minutes. And yet, not all of the peace has dissipated. More importantly, much of the anxiety has.
At last, for the first time on his long, arduous journey, it seems Yusin has finally achieved some measure of clarity. We'll check back in with Yusin at the Bell Tower next episode. Next, it's time for our regular discussion segment, in which we tackle problems that writers often face in constructing their own stories. This time, Rainey is joined by Huzawacha and Vent to talk about characters, specifically what to do when your story has a bunch of them. They'll also be taking time to discuss characters that overlap or fill similar roles, often as a result of such large casts. Without further ado, take it away, Rainey. G'day, it's your host Rainy here with the discussion segment. This episode, our topic is too many cooks dealing with large casts. And I think every Nuzlocke writer has had to deal with this eventually because Pokemon games have so many characters, a heck of a lot of characters. And um, that's not even if you count the Pokemon that you catch. <laughs> so joining me today are the wonderful Vent and Husa. So who would like to give their intros to the people? Vent, you go first. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ben. I write few runs. My current run is Butterfly Effect, which is the Ultra Sun Nuzlocke and alternate universe run of my other run, Bloodlines, and then I also occasionally write Down Memory Lane. Awesome. And Huza? Hi, I'm Huza. Huza Wacha. I, uh, oh my god, what do I write? <laughs> I write Come Hell or High Water. It's a Sun Nuzlocke, and, you know, it's pretty fun. Lots of violence. <laughs> we've brought up your runs before on the podcast <laughs> and everyone loves them so don't speak so down about yourself <laughs> <laughs> all right uh let's get to it then with our first question nuzlocke writers often have to deal with large casts so what sort of troubles can arise from this how about i go first so my biggest worry is character overlap so you have a lot of characters that have the same job so like gym leaders and evil gang members that sort of thing so i do find it a little hard to craft distinct personalities when they all need something that defines why they're in that job or you know, how they do that job you also sort of have the same thing with pokemon especially if they're able to talk so they all need a reason why they need to follow the trainer in the first place or they want to fight despite the risks and yeah that's probably my biggest worry and the trouble that i have the most yeah, I think I I agree with that. It was that the biggest pitfall for me is like characters just coming off too similar, and sometimes you realize that you have Y character playing for Z thing, and then realize that another character can just do that better. And then you have actually erased one or two characters for that reason, just their role in the story was better done by one or even two other characters. So it can definitely be a pitfall, just like trying to prevent your story from like having too much in it making sure the characters in there are like distinct and have like important memorable roles and not that character that people are like, I want to see more of them, but they're just not just what's there isn't that interesting is basically what I'd say is the main pitfall. Yeah, especially since um, Nuzlocke's do tend to be a long form of story. So it is easy to sometimes have the same scenarios and the same characters pop up every now and again, especially if you're taking a long time to write and you've kind of forgotten that that character existed at one point. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, who's are your thoughts? Uh, well, I guess for me, like the top three problems of dealing with large casts is it's got to be what you guys have said. You know, people are forgetting which characters are which because they're too similar. Sometimes you have characters that are paper thin and then sometimes your story is going to bloat just too big because you've got so many people. Like the top tender for winning all three of these issues was... My very first run on the forum, Silver Linings, <laughs> that was a beefy story, you guys, I'm telling you. It had like over 40 chapters and I was still only halfway done at the time I dropped it. And the claim to fame that Silver Linings has was that 
I included all of the box Pokemon, like all of them. And it's not like, oh, they were all non-speaking roles. No, they were talking Pokemon, all the box Pokemons, in addition to the main cast of humans and the main cast of six Pokemon. I was juggling a lot of extras. <laughs> so while the main cast could, you know, get quite a lot of depth, famously in Vasco, my love, my dearest, the box Pokemon just amounted to not getting as much depth, you know, because there wasn't room for it, given it all had to go to the main cast. So that being said, they had to play their tropes well. I had Aziz, who was a daredevil. I had Soraya, my very sweet, clinically depressed Chansey. Kayan was a bratty gossip. Mildred actually got to shine quite a bit because she ended up being this polarizing motivator for the main cast, which I think is why, despite the huge cast, this was able to actually function decently as a story, because all of Ivana's disabled box Pokemon functioned as a family and secondary drive that pulled the main cast together. So despite them being extras, beyond being, you know, fun to bounce off the main cast, they were the primary motivators for the main cast. So I guess for the troubles, you just have to weigh what your characters are and redistribute where the weaknesses are into strengths. So even if your characters are two-dimensional at times as extras, do they give motivation and depth to your other three-dimensional characters? Is it okay for the others to fall to the wayside in order to prop up your main characters? The answer is yes. Hmm, that's actually a really, really good answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I did not expect that from just your like single-line metocum. <laughs> Sometimes I just get talking and I got something to say. I don't know. That was really good. <laughs> I've dealt with the most horrendous of big casts and it was both a blessing and also a curse. Oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that's a good segue for our second question then, which is how can we sort out roles amongst our large casts? <laughs> uh, well, for me, I think it helps if you create a web for each character and you put down what their relation is to each other. So by figuring out what characters are supportive, neutral or antagonistic, it might help you to break down what traits they may need to make them distinct. You might even figure out what characters can act as foils for each other, like we discussed in our previous episode. <laughs> That's a good call back there. I know most Pokemon are the hardest to find roles for, but if you can link them back to their trainer and the needs of that trainer, you can also look at how each Pokemon can support them or create opportunities for growth. There we go. <laughs> that's my answer so vent yes yeah so i definitely agree with that like the web thing like tying back into the main trainer like with each other and i think that goes for both pokemon and people but obviously it, like in my runs that the protagonist is usually somewhat familiar with like especially in bloodlines where he's just known as gym leaders all his life it's very easy to make that sort of web that all ties back into the protagonist that ties back in some aspect of them like emotionally or like where they are in their life or the story and so on and so forth and obviously it's not going to be something you can do in every story like that not every character is going to be like my protagonist where they know the gym leaves all super well and so on and so forth but you could even in those stories where they not really family friends or even more antagonistic, you can still tie them back into some other aspect of the plot or some other aspect of the other characters, gym leaders, and so on and so forth. Hmm. That's a good idea. I mean, not every character needs to be explored in depth. I know we've talked about that on the podcast before. Just having them just distinct enough so you can tell between each of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, who's up? Yeah, I definitely get with that because, you know, most of the time compared to your main cast, your extras, they don't need as much depth pumped into them. 
So, like, in order to sort out your roles amongst the large cast, you got to figure out your protagonists, your deuteragonists and such, you know, your main villains, your main core supporting cast. Those are the ones you got to focus on first and foremost. Now, for the, all the extras you've got right around, you just need to first determine if they actually need pivotal reasons to be part of the story or not. Like, if not, just cut them. I promise you're not going to miss that dead weight. I hacked all of Team Skull from Come Hell or High Water in order to downsize the cast. Luckily, I was able to retool Guzma and Plumeria, though, which I'm very happy about. And so once you determine the extras have a reason to be there, is it to prop up your main characters? Do they elicit character growth? Uh, do they pose plot purposes? And, like, at this point, like, it's okay if they're not as fleshed out as your main cast because they shouldn't be. They're extras. They're here for a function, and as long as they do it well, the story and the main characters are going to improve because of it. Because, listen, listen, I'm just saying we can't all be Behold a Pale Horse with its gym leader extras, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but even then, with the extras, locals doing, like, work with these, because the bread and butter of Bath is playing with the dark, gritty emotional consequences of what an assassination does. So humanizing his targets after Eddie's killed them functions as the solid gut punch to your readers. It paints Eddie as more of a villain than an anti-hero because it's serving to show that everyone's human at the end of the day, as hard as, you know, Eddie might try to ignore that. I also think uh, Missy's Three's a Crown does an excellent job at handling a large cast because, let's be real, in Three's a Crown, there are a ton of characters. And I'm not talking just like triple protagonists, each with their own Pokemon team, but also like all the extra characters that each girl meets, which ones become pivotal to each girl, and how each girl interacts with all these different people, whether they intersect or not. And like Rourke and Gardenia stick out strongly despite being supporting characters, because each of them are wrapped up in an important aspect of world building, and it sets the stage where the protagonist's motivations lie. Like, Missy does this thing where all her extra characters impact or reveal the world building in interesting ways, and it's definitely something I want to emulate. Cool. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I just went off on a tangent. Read other people's runs. Yes, Do it. Yes, yes, yes. We always make heaps of recommendations on the podcast, which I'm really glad about. <laughs> yeah, giving people a reason as to why to read and what they can take away from the different runs is really good too. Sets a good example. Mm -hmm. Vent, you've got to step up with your answers. My goodness. <laughs> I just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm only like a drink into this. It's fine. <laughs> Well, we're almost done anyway, so finally, our third question. What can we do to ensure things don't get confusing with multiple characters in one scene? <laughs> and I know that's a really tricky one for a lot of people, especially if you're a beginner writer. So, uh, Vent, since you haven't gone Dialogue first. tags. Dialogue tags, abuse them. <laughs> so, for me, I do agree with dialogue tags, and I also just like strongly character voice, which is very, very tricky in terms of, like, you're writing words, and I use, like, voice actors, or not even necessarily using more than, like, italics, and I'm using as many tools as even, like, comics would, in terms of, like, differentiating characters, in terms of, like, just past, like, the words, basically. So, essentially, I always try to keep character voice in mind, no matter what, because I feel like that's super important, just in general, even past, like, bigger scenes, with, like, five people talking, but also, I tend to write a lot of body language as well, which I feel like, A, helps avoid just, like, talking heads which i don't like to write or read personally where it's just like blank said character x and then character y says 
see and so on and so forth. And it's like, it can work sometimes, but that's kind of boring to me. So I usually try to like add in body language, add in like verbal tics, and even just like random happenings that sort of tie back into the characters, like somehow, some way in the background. Like I did it recently with chapter five, like one of my runs where Gladian birds are talking and I wrote about how Gladian was like observing a child at the beach, just like hanging out and having fun with his parents and without saying, obviously, that he's kind of sort of jealous of that. And just basically try not to have, like, straight dialogue is what I'm trying to say. Try to have distinct voices and try to have, like, by language and other happenings sort of related to the characters and the story and the conversation, like, happening around them. Uh, use all the tools that you have at your disposal, including, yep, like, exactly. and italics, that sort of thing. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. For me, if I have multiple characters, I try to use their name in some way before they talk in order to create a smooth transition. Many of my characters have a distinct movement that I attribute to them. So one of my main characters' movements is for her to run her hand through her hair. So I feel like that works well for conveying her frustration which is a constant thing with her <laughs> but also gives the reader more of a vivid image of her in their head before she says anything sometimes I also have the main character look and observe another character and think about them as well in order to transition to them yeah that makes sense <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah I mean that makes sense like because actually one of my things that I was thinking about was how you know you need to give characters like hallmark traits so people know who they are and it's kind of like how you know your girl breaks her hands through her hair or how like even Sonia or Sonia, however you say her name, twirls her hair when she's talking or thinking. Like, those are things that'll tip off your subconscious a little bit and be like, oh, you've indicated this motion that belongs to this character. I'm also a big fan of just dialogue tags, abuse them, but like, not all at the end of the sentence. Like, blah, 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 they said, blah, 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 this person said. Like, no, stagger that out at the beginning, stagger them everywhere in between to make it interesting with the way you're structuring your sentences. Yeah, and um, just if I can inter, if I can just interject there, uh -huh. dialogue yeah. tags. Yeah, because people don't just talk to each other one on one, especially if you observe if you're talking to somebody or in a group. You can see people will do their movements in between, or they'll take some time, or they'll maybe fiddle with something, and you can always add that in. It's just not you know straight talk, 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 talk. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And like my biggest thing that I would say is, uh, you know, make sure everybody's voices are different and strong. Like make sure that no matter who is talking, you know who's talking by their speech patterns alone. Like my previous protagonist, Josie, spoke in half-formed thoughts, fractured, run-on sentences, laden with sarcasm and swearing. And then my new protagonist, Tamaya. Tamaya is clipped. She's to the point. She doesn't waste words. So if you cultivate how your characters speak, what their vocabulary is like, what their slang is like, that'll help you differentiate characters. And also, the most obvious thing about multiple characters in one scene, just don't have too many characters in one single scene. <laughs> like, give them excuses to break them apart into smaller, more manageable groups. Like, it's really hard to keep track of a lot of people and make sure somebody's not being overshadowed over talked if somebody else is carrying all the weight of it and somebody else is just adding like vague comments that you don't really need just act them out make them go take a nap somewhere i don't know <laughs> i know if i have pokemon out in a scene i'll have them go off and play somewhere while the adults are talking <laughs> yeah, yeah that's what i tend to do as well even just like makes sense it's like random like sort of cute personality happening because well mine don't talk so that's it kind of goes back to the first question talking about like talking Pokemon and not talking Pokemon, but 
they don't talk. So a lot of that fire language comes into play there in terms of, like, helping develop the Pokemon. And even small things, just, like, like a Robin just, like, crawling up a pants leg and the trainer, like, bending down, like, letting it climb up his arm can be, like, good, like, dialogue breakers, like, breaking up this, like, big conversations and also give a tiny bit of development to the trainer in Pokemon. And from comments I've seen about my run and other runs, that seems to be really just effective in general and just, like, managing groups and managing Pokemon. Yeah, it's really difficult to like manage a whole team of Pokemon because there's a lot happening, even though they can't speak. Like, honestly, Missy does this excellent thing with her Pokemon where she digs into their personalities so much with how they move, how they interact with the world. And like, I really think that's something to be emulated because it's hard to like, especially with exposition scenes where you're giving a lot of information to be able to keep a scene moving and not like just bog it down completely agreed yeah okay how about we leave it there for now unless you have any uh last thoughts no i mean i think we i think that's all yeah i think we covered everything pretty well yeah you have (laughs) yeah both of you have been very good at this (laughs) very happy (laughs) (laughs) good yeah all right let's go to our outros then so who would like to say goodbye to the peoples (laughs) as opposed to say hello (laughs) okay well hi goodbye my name is who's watcher I'm leaving. Go read the runs I've mentioned. I think I mentioned Behold a Pell Horse and Three's a Crown. I should have mentioned more, but that's all I had time for today. Thank you. <laughs> yep, I'm Ben. It was nice talking with you all. Nice talking with the audience a little bit. And nice to finally be on the podcast for a little bit. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. And yeah, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled podcasting. See ya. Bye. Thanks again to Who's a Watcha and Vent for joining us this episode. Behold, A Pale Horse is a story lock of Pokemon Pearl, written by local honey. Debt and a mysterious contract bring notorious hitman Edmund Dorian out of retirement and back to a life of crime. His mission, eliminate the Coronet 12, Sinnoh's governing body. Eddie is thrust into the web of lies and secrets forged by new enemies and old acquaintances, and must navigate otherworldly forces beyond his control, all while staying five steps ahead of the law. Our reader for Behold, a Pale Horse, for the next few episodes, is Plain Yogurt. We join Edmund in the middle of his mission, with three members of the Twelve already crossed off his list. Behold, a Pale Horse, by Local Honey. Chapter 11. Loaded. Dion's uncle is fucking loaded. After a 30-minute drive out to the Pastoria countryside, the limousine stopped in front of the textbook definition of a mansion. If you looked up the word mansion in a dictionary, a picture from where I was standing would be slapped on the page. The driveway alone looked about a mile long, every paver carefully cleaned on the way to the house itself. The path was lined with those big ornate hedges that you only see in Kalos, except here they were shaped like Milotic and Gyarados, alternating all the way down. We followed the sea serpents all the way to the front doors, making sure to take note of the cabana bar stocked with Unibin whiskey. The doors resembled those at the Tomb of Radiance, including the fact that they opened by themselves. By themselves, meaning with the help of one bald, penguin-suited man. Our muscular entourage is dispersed throughout the house, leaving only large, larger, and a new addition to the crew, largest. 
The entrance hall looked like everything Om Om Snow wished it was. Red velvet carpet, gold trim, chandeliers, but not pushing the fancy envelope too far. In the middle of one of the walls was what looked like a family portrait. A strong old man with long white hair was flanked by a young wake and what looked like a stronger, taller version of Dion in a green coat and white turtleneck. The three of them stood at the door to some skyscraper. Wake, or Maximilian, as he introduced himself on the drive over, had me and Dion wait in what I assumed was one of 27 living rooms while he'd changed out of his wrestler gear. Dion sunk into the plush couch, arms crossed, while I looked around the room. The whole western wall was one massive, probably bulletproof, glass pane. I tapped it with a knuckle and confirmed my suspicions. The living room window looked out onto what seemed like an infinite expanse of grass and trees and water. At this distance, the cars driving between Pastoria and Hartholm looked like toys. Maximilian slid into the room silently, only betrayed by the sound of a stopper exiting a whiskey decanter. He poured a glass and handed it to me. You mentioned you're a bit of a liquor lover in the car. That's White City 50 year. I looked at the glass in my hand like I was holding Lugia's silver wing. I didn't even know they sold 50 year. Oldest I've ever gotten my hands on was a 20 year. Fair warning. That's going to ruin the taste of 20 year for you. I took a tentative sip and realized he was right. He poured himself his own glass and sat down across from Dion. You still don't drink, do you, Dion? And end up like the Tarot Tycoon himself? I'll pass. I shot him a look that meant, what? And he answered with a, don't sweat it. I knew that the tycoon over in Hoenn was some purple-haired lady that had gone missing, but I couldn't remember the name of Sinnoh's tycoon. My brother has his days. Years, more like. Maximilian put his hands up in surrender. Palmer does love you, though. I nearly dropped my glass as Dion rolled his eyes. Wait, 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 wait one damn minute. You're telling me that your dad is Palmer Michaels? <laughs> Who's your mom, Elisa Electra? Dion grimaced. Yes, Palmer Michaels is my dad. Then why the fuck were you living in bumfuck Twinleaf? Because I told him to go fuck himself. He was already grooming me to be the next tycoon. I didn't want to do that shit. You still had Wake here. Why didn't you ask him for help? I didn't want his help. I used the money my mom left me in her will to go to school in the Sevy Isles. When I came back, Twinleaf was the only place I could afford. A harsh silence took over the room. Dion shifted uncomfortably under Wake's gaze, and I tried to put my eyes anywhere but the two of them. Wake broke the silence. Never mind that now. Why were you hunting me down in the middle of Pistoria? I know you've seen Rourke and Gardenia get killed, and now Maylene is dead too. I'm not letting your stubborn ass die just because you want to keep wrestling. Maximilian leaned back in his chair. That was my last wrestling match of the year. Only because it had been in the making for the past three years. You wouldn't believe what it takes to haul Wolfric's ass all the way out to Sinnoh. You're not listening to me. You're going to die. Dion, listen. The Twelve have already voted on and set guidelines for our actions moving forward. The glass at the mansion is bulletproof, I've got around-the-clock security. Hell, I've had one of those three bald guys at my door every night in case of anything. It's going to be fine. You're not even worried? What about the gauntlet? 
No, I'm not. And what about the gauntlet? It'll continue as per usual. No two-bit terrorist is keeping me from the spotlight. Ouch. Anyways, you both have free run of the house. I've got some business to attend to, but I can send a few guards back to the gauntlet apartment to grab your stuff if you feel like sticking around for a few days. <sighs> I guess that wouldn't be a terrible idea. Thanks, Unc. Maximilian flashed a grin, then disappeared into the seemingly infinite house. Dion and I went on an excursion through the mansion and picked our rooms. I personally sprung for the one with a flat-screen television for a wall and a bathroom directly attached to it. Just as I was getting comfortable in the sheets, Dion came knocking. We walked out the back of the house into a garden that rivaled the Eterna Forest for greenery. Somewhere past all the massive Milotic and Gyarados hedges was a large clearing with a fountain in the middle. Are you planning on killing me and throwing my body in this garden, Dion? He splayed out on the ground, staring at the sky. Mm, no, not particularly. Not a bad idea, though. Nobody would find you if I picked the right bush. I kicked him in the shin, eliciting the expected response. What's the feed? I hate my life routine. Eh, the usual. Mom's dead, Dad's an alcoholic and a workaholic, and my uncle has no sense of self-preservation. How would you feel? Well, let's go down the list. My dad's dead, my mom's on the way, and any extended family I had either never reached out or doesn't exist. You don't see me staring at the sky begging to get struck by lightning or something. <sighs> That's what happens when you get old. Being depressed is a par for the course. Another kick to the shin. Fuck! All right, all right, I get it. I crouched down. What I'm about to say is cliche as hell, but if I'm saying it, it's for good reason. Life goes on. Maybe you and your dad aren't on good terms and your mom passed away. You're still running the gauntlet without him. Big bad Dion Michaels, giving the Twelve a run for their money. I clapped him on the shoulder and helped him stand up. Plus, Wake's a big man. He looks like he can handle himself. Maylene lived in a monastery with no security, Gardenia lived in the second most populated city in the region, and Rorik broadcasted his location everywhere he went. Wake's got security up his ass. He'll be alright. It's just... He's the only person on my dad's side that ever gave a shit about me or my mom. I don't want to lose that, as much as I want nothing to do with my dad. The thought of killing Wake crept back up, but I pushed it back down again. You won't. I promise. Talk about a conflict of interest. Edmund has his orders, but it seems there might be some complications abound. We'll see how Eddie resolves this situation next time. Dandelion is a storylock of Pokemon Shield, written by Aria. The Eve of Summer brings change, warmth, and new beginnings. Years have passed since Sonya's own failed attempt at the League, but time alone does not heal wounds. Dandelion by Aria Part 4 Hand They hear the stadium before they see it. The week of opening ceremonies draws crowds from all over Galar clogging the streets of Motostoke like the black smog that pours from the city's smokestacks. Sonya leads Leon along by the hand so he doesn't get lost. 
weaving in and out of the throng of spectators and following the war of the stadium speakers. He bumbles along behind her, starry-eyed and gravitating toward every vendor they come across. The lift carries them to the upper sector of the city, where the stadium sprawls before them. Registration is a whirlwind of making lodging accommodations, distributing customized jerseys, and logging their Pokemon in the system. It's overwhelming, but she holds fast to Leon's hand and lets him take the lead, smiling and laughing and mingling with the rest of the contestants. She only hopes he doesn't mind, but if he does, he doesn't let on. They're forced to separate when the ceremony is about to begin, filed into locker rooms to change, then asked to line up by the numbers on their jerseys during the procession. Leon, having registered early enough to snag the coveted number one, will be amongst those leading the charge. He withdraws his hand reluctantly, flashing a huge grin at her and promising to catch her afterward. She feels small, surrounded by hundreds of other contestants. They march as a unit through a tunnel beneath stands, and with every step she finds herself going more and more anxious. The thought of being on display for all of Galar makes her dig her heels into the ground, stopping just short of the spotlight. She takes a step back, and her shoulder to side by one of the much older contestants. Self-doubt starts swirling in her chest like a storm, and she struggles to take a full breath. A warm, steady hand slides in hers. She looks up at Leon, shocked to see him out of formation, and he shrugs. Being up front is cool, but I won't even be here without you. You ready for this? He squeezes her hand, and they step onto the turf together. What do you think? Too skimpy? Nessa doesn't even look up from her phone. She's laying belly down on the bed, ankles crossed behind her. You realize you're talking to someone who shows up to work every day in a bikini, yeah? Sonia purses her lips, hiking the gown and stepping further into the hotel room light, twirling in front of the floor-length mirror. Runs her hands down her torso and over her hips to smooth the shimmery teal fabric. Adjusts the plunging V, flares out the hem, admires the open back. It's only when she makes a pleased little humph that Nessa lays her phone down on the bed and wolf whistles. Shit, Sonia, where'd you pick up that little number? Online sale, she says, idly twirling her hair back into a tight ringlet. You don't think the sequins are a bit much? Definitely not, Nessa purrs, sliding off the bed to admire it up close. You're going to absolutely slay Lee. Sonia can't quite fight off a smirk. <laughs> I'm more concerned with not looking like a troll next to you. Nessa scoffs, already digging through her things that have been scattered haphazardly across the vanity. She retrieves a glittering diamond choker that nearly makes Sonia balk. It's got to be extremely expensive, even though it was probably a gift from one of Nessa's sponsors, and fastens it around her neck. She sweeps Sonia's hair over one shoulder and narrows her eyes, clearly pleased with the adjustment, and winks coyly. In a dress like that, you might stand a fighting chance. It's a generous statement. They spend all day lounging around the hotel room, swapping jewelry and shoes and stories, laughing until Sonia's stomach hurts and helping each other with makeup and hair. She's missed this, she realizes, and it makes her heart feel full and empty simultaneously. Nessa and Rehan are always busy with their gyms and modeling. Leon's the unbeatable champion and damn near inescapable, as his face is plastered on everything across the region. And her? She's the disappointing lab assistant. It's hard to dwell on it, though. Not when she's having this much fun. Not when she feels like a goddamn mermaid, 
even next to Nessa in her intricate designer gown. The feeling doesn't resurface until they reach the gala. Nessa squeezes her hand and winks as she flounces over to the other half of Galar's hottest item. Rayhan managed to put on a proper tux for once, looks like. He tucks Nessa under his arm roughly in a hug, hand resting on her hip and the other waving Sonia over. Her stomach clenches, but her expression remains smooth and polished as porcelain. I see Nessa finally dragged you out of that stuffy old lab, he booms, eyes glittering with mischief. His breath is already sharp with alcohol. How have you been? I'll be better once I locate the bar. Seems you're well acquainted with it already this evening. He houses laughter, clapping her on the shoulder. His teeth gleam like the fangs of his dragons as he grins at her. Cheers to that, mate. Put it on my tab. We're celebrating tonight. Celebrating? Nessa asks, poking him in the side. Didn't you just have your ass handed to you in your exhibition match? Bugger off, Nessie, he slurs, palming her face and gently shoving her aside. That match is old news. I'm talking about my new sponsorship I just scored. Oh, love, Nessa tuts, pulling up her phone to burst his bubble. You want to talk sponsors. Rayhan swipes the phone from her, tucking it in his breast pocket and laughing as she struggles to reach for it. Even in stilettos, she's no match for his height. His laughter is like rolling thunder, volume amplified in the ornate ballroom. It sends shockwaves through the more civilized guests, drawing stares their way. He's always known how to draw attention to himself, good or bad. Nessa tries to shush him through her giggles, which only eggs him on. Finally, she grabs his lapels and yanks him downward, back to earth, shutting him up by kissing the breath out of him. When they finally come back up for air, Nessa has successfully retrieved her phone, and Sonia is halfway to the bar. Classical music filters through the din of people mixing and mingling, courtesy of the string quartet near the stage. She orders a double martini, and when she asks to put it on Rehan's tab, the barkeep snorts. Open bar, miss. Her mouth twitches into something resembling a grin. She should have known, cheeky little shit. And then a single will do for now. She watches Nessa and Rayhan from across the room, oblivious to her absence. There should only be room for joy when she sees how happy they are. Joy that they found each other. That they're thriving personally and professionally. Nessa's her best friend. And Rayhan's a well-meaning doof at worst. She loves the hell out of them both but something ugly, something she's not proud of, coils in her gut. She intends to drown it with alcohol. Sonia's polishing off her second martini when Rose takes the stage, and her lip involuntarily curls. His white text is accented with a single red rose in his breast pocket, and she chooses to focus on that when he speaks not on his perfectly coiffed hair, the flourish of his hands, or the way everyone else in the room hangs on his every word. The second he introduces the champion, and Leon takes the stage, everyone is drawn to them like a magnet. She hooks her heel on the bar stool, anchoring herself there she takes a gulp of her drink, and she glances around to see if anyone else is immune to their pull. She's surprised to see Hop, of all people, slumped on a couch with a scowl that must match hers. Curious. She follows his glare across the ballroom, to where Leon and the chairman are conversing, and... Oh, that was a mistake. Leon catches her watching, and she finds herself subconsciously straightening her posture, batting her lashes longingly, at her drink. She holds it up as if to inspect it, the center of her attention and affection, the only thing that can quench her thirst. She's never been the most convincing liar. 
It takes him a while to get to her, wading through a throng of admirers seeking his attention or an autograph. But when he says hello, his voice sounds breathy and weak. It only serves to fuel her, and she crosses her legs daintily. Good evening, Leon. I'm so glad you decided to come, Sonia, he says, settling into the stool next to hers. He doesn't move to order a drink, instead drinks her in, eyes skimming her in a way that leaves her warm and tingling, and maybe a little smug. You look absolutely ravishing. Thank you. She runs her tongue across the inside of her lip, hazarding a glance at his get-up. Maroon suit coat with gold buttons, white silk jabot, tan pants tucked into sleek black riding boots, and of course, you almost managed to pull off a cape with the suit. He exhales a laugh through his nose, shaking his head. Rose insisted. Makes the sponsors happy and all. He tugs at the faux fur that lines the nape of his neck. I normally don't mind, but it's rather hot in here. Sonia raises an eyebrow. Oh? Too many people, he says quickly, clears his throat, leans with his back against the bar, and rests his elbows on the counter. Good turnout this year, for the challenge. She decides to take pity on him, and go along with his not-so-subtle redirect. Hopes that you've got a larger sample size, since Rose insists on cradle-robbing. I imagine half will drop out before Kabu. Maybe so, he muses. After a beat, he stands, turns and bows his head, extending his hand for her to take. What say we join our friends, hmm? The grand gesture is meant to be overblown and silly, but she can't help but wonder if Rose's egregious ways haven't begun to rub off on him. Sonia takes his gloved hand in both of hers, patting it gently to decline. She is very aware of all eyes on her. Every admirer in the room must be wondering if she's off her rocker for rejecting him. I'll catch up with you lot soon. There's something I need to do first. If Leon's hurt, he doesn't let it show. Takes it in stride with a charming, too-perfect smile. and makes her stomach clench. Rose must have found that chipped lower tooth of his unsightly and sprung for veneers. She hates him for it. It's like he's picked apart everything she once loved about the man in front of her and polished it beyond recognition. But it's still Leon who winks and squeezes her hand. Save a dance for me, will you? She smiles serenely and flags the barkeep. But of course. As always, we'd like to thank our readers, Radderf, Plain Yogurt and Silverdough, our editors, CJ Apples and Song With No Soul, our assistant editors, Herberor, Little Badler, and Silverdough, our producers, Rainy and Flop, and the rest of the Writer's Lock crew for bringing this project to life. And of course, thanks to Rosella Queen for our theme music, Seamaid for arranging our jingles, and Narc Simba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been The Writer's Lock. Stay safe, everyone.